Welcome to Planet Beyond Podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in delivering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. And this month, we're tackling a sector that truly encompasses that name, Planet Beyond. This is a sector that nearly doubled in size between 2010 and 2020, and is expected to almost triple by 2040. Many of us are perhaps unaware that it impacts our lives every day in in the way that we work, in the way that we travel, and in the way that we communicate. Our current and future prosperity depends on it utterly. I'm talking about space. The Space Age began with the launch of Sputnik some 65 years ago. And in the popular imagination, it may be dominated by the the gargantuan efforts of the United States to, to put a man on the moon. But in the last 25 years, with its advances in computing, automation and rocketry that has allowed the industry to to begin to dream big. What comes next? And what is still needed to cross the final frontier? These will be the questions for our three guests today. We have Tim Crane, Vice President of Research and Development at Intuitive Machines. Sam Forbes, Director of Spark Fugro, and Dawn McIntosh, Space Systems Director at Spark Fugro 2. So if I can begin with you, Tim, maybe introduce yourself and and maybe explain what your company does and the context into which it was born. Absolutely, John. In 2013, my business partners, uh, Steve Altimus and Cam Gaffarian and I formed Intuitive Machines with the idea that a lot of the engineering techniques, development approaches, program management, systems engineering that we had experienced at NASA could be brought out and applied commercially across sectors and, and really to challenge some of the world's most intractable problems. And if you recall around this time, big data was a thing for the first time. And and there was all this excitement about reapplying engineering and data management and science to to our problems. So we came out and we we went after, uh, we developed drones, we did remediation of oil spills with complex uh, computer analysis. We worked on biomedical devices, probably close to 30 inventions in five years. 30 inventions? But we, we, didn't, we didn't fall in love with any of them. We, we kind of bounced along and invented different things and helped companies out, but, but we didn't have a true calling. And around 2018, there was a shift at NASA where previously the policy would kind of drift between Mars as a priority and the moon as a priority over different administrations. And there's a little bit of a back and forth. The moon came back as a priority for NASA in a big way. And, and in a way that looked like it would withstand a future shift back to to another priority. And they announced the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program. Now this 
was an evolution for NASA, beginning with commercial cargo for the International Space Station, then commercial crew. And so this idea was, hey, if we want to go to the moon and we want to do the Artemis program, how do we also get a commercial element of that? So it's not just giant rockets and giant corporations on direct contract for NASA. How can there be something that has more of a commercial flair? And one of the, the CLIPS program features, they said, we want to go to the moon and we want to not be the only customer that you take to the moon. So we want to contract like a delivery service for the payload integration, the payload delivery, the power, the data, but we want to be one of many customers and we want to foster a, a commercial environment for lunar transportation and lunar infrastructure. And that really called to us and we pivoted the company. Um, we dropped the broad specter view and, and have gone all in on lunar development. That's quite wide ranging thinking, isn't it? Because to a degree, NASA already had the ball in their hands, but they, they decided to take a very different approach to it. Yeah, but something you can understand, um, the difference you pay in an automobile that you have custom made versus one that you buy as part of a commercial endeavor where they've made several is significant. And as, as long as in the space industry, we're doing one-off missions, one-off developments, that start from the ground and, and build all the way up. And I, I see Dawn nodding her head. I know she's got some thoughts on this. Um, as, long, as long as we start from the ground and we build every mission and every opportunity from scratch, the cost won't ever come down. On the other hand, if we have commercial offerings where we say, well, there's something we do regularly with a number of participants in it, not only will we bring the cost of that access and infrastructure down, there will also be innovation working with more people in a, in a economic commercial marketplace. We'll bring Dawn in in a second because I, I can see she, she's keen to contribute. But first, can you tell us where intuitive machines are in terms of missions? So we've had some success uh, early in a, a competitive vendor pool with the CLIPS program, and we've won three contracts from NASA. And I'm going to use some specific language here because we've won three payload contracts but we have three IM missions that are, are more than just those contracts. So we have other payload customers on each of those missions. The first mission is IM-1, which will go to the Lunar South Pole. And our current launch date for that is late March of 2023. And in that mission, we will mate the payloads onto our Nova Sea lander. We'll transport the lander to Florida, where we'll then mate it to a Falcon 9 booster. The Falcon 9 will lift us above the atmosphere and basically put us on a ballistic trajectory to the moon. So we'll separate from the Falcon 9 after main engine cutoff. We call that MECO in the industry. After MECO, uh, about 32, 35 minutes after launch, we'll separate from the Falcon 9. And then we're on our own trajectory. We do our own trajectory correction maneuvers. We capture at the moon. We orbit the moon for a day to check out all our systems and make sure we're in good configuration. And then we do a power descent to a soft touch on the landing. Once the Nova Sea lander lands, it goes from being a spacecraft to a power and data hub. And the sensors we carry with us, we provide them with power, computer resources, and then we relay their data back to a uh, global ground station network that we have established with our own radios working with radio astronomy dishes, such as the Parks dish in Australia. 
March 2023 isn't very far away, is it? Don't I know it. So it must all be nearly ready to go. What stage are you at now? We're, we're in the final integration and test. So all the, all the systems have been developed. They've been tested individually. So now we're pulling it all together and testing it together. And, and it's interesting when you do something for the first time, despite your best plans, it's when you start bringing those things together that you realize maybe something doesn't fit exactly the way you thought. And, and that could be hardware. It could be software. And those are the issues we're working through now to make sure everything is properly integrated so we really have our best shot at, um, at successfully landing on the moon. This is a space where you really can't avoid risks. So, so how do you approach managing them? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and there's a cost curve for reliability. And, and it's fairly linear up into the 90% range. But, but once you get above that, you start paying a lot more for every incremental increase in, in reliability. So if we were to execute a mission that said, hey, we need a 99.999% probability of success, the cost would be an order of magnitude more than what we're able to do it for now. Because we are accepting some risks, and, and we like to say we're managing the risks. We're not avoiding them, but we look at them and go, hey, the, these these risks are, are relatively small, and, and we can tolerate those or recover from them. And particularly the thing we look for is risks that overlap. So if there are two risks that overlap in the same spot, we try to go after those for sure because the, the probability of something happening in that configuration is higher. Now, I, I feel I can't hold Dawn back any longer. She wants to jump in and we'll, we'll give her that opportunity now. Hello there, Dawn. Hello. How are you doing, John? I'm doing well. Maybe you can tell us a bit about your background, your time at NASA, and why you moved to Perth. Go on, set the scene for us, Dawn. I moved to Perth just this um, beginning of this year. But prior to that, to that, I was living in California and working at NASA Ames Research Center. And I, for the last 10 plus years or so, I've been leading, a te leading teams um, of engineers and scientists, um, building those one-off unique spacecraft missions that Tim was speaking about. And that's an extremely fun and challenging job. And um, I plan to do that for the rest of my career. But as Tim pointed out, the, those one-off uh, missions have a disadvantage in that they are the least efficient, the most cost, the most expensive way to build a spacecraft. And so watching that happen over and over again, um, I felt that I really w wanted to tackle the interesting problem of, of creating um, commonality, creating infrastructure around that. And as it turns out, Sam and um, others at Fugro Spark had the same vision and they, I'll let Sam tell his portion of that story, but in that dial, you know, dialoguing with Sam, I realized that this was my opportunity to step away from the space asset side and start paying attention to the ground side and that infrastructure mission mission uh, um, mission operations as a service and being able to provide that um, to Australia and also international partners. And I couldn't resist. I had to say yes to that. It sounds like an awfully brave, courageous move. You're, you're already doing something that you really love doing, but then moved around the world to do something outside your comfort zone. <laughs> I 
Well, and honestly, I think that if you spend your time building spacecraft, which is an extremely hard thing to do, this type of challenge kind of fits. I think that's the same type of personality. I think they're the same. So one thing interesting that, uh, Don, you said is you use the as a service, and I'm doing air quotes, you use the as a service terminology, which really is is a new thing in our lives. That's right. Where prior to this, this small book company deciding that instead of building computer systems from scratch, they were going to take computer services for managing their inventory and customer engagement and turn that into Amazon Web Services. All of a sudden, this as-a-service philosophy for various things on Earth became real. And we've had a whole economy open up because the infrastructure that it took to uh, uh, do a digital transformation at your company really went down because the the, the web servers, the uh, the backbone of, of, of capabilities really became regular infrastructure. And so as a service on Earth is something we're very used to now. Our cell phones as a service or, you know, whatever it might be. But for, for you to think of it in the context of space, who knows where this will be in 15 or 20 years if the basics of space transportation is also as a service. So are these the first steps towards commoditizing space? I think we would all hope so. <laughs> we, we, we have to take these steps to commoditize space for sure and to make it accessible to more people. I and mean, if you think about where we are with commercial air travel today, we didn't get there overnight. It took a, a, a small start of a small number of people traveling across the Atlantic, um, you know, across the Pacific. But then over time, those capabilities, that infrastructure got better and better and better, where now air travel is incredibly safe and, and it's ubiquitous. So you have to make those steps. How long it will take? Well, we just have to grind away and see what we can do in our lifetime. Let's bring in Sam Forbes. Sam, Donald already mentioned the Spark Space Center. Can you explain to us what it's all about? And, and I believe there was a, a grand opening only last week. Is that right? Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, uh, that's right. Um, only last week, we kind of went through that, that formal process of announcing to the world after nearly two years of kind of formalized project work that the facility would be opening obviously there was there was a quite a quite a lead in to get to that point in the first place but but ultimately we opened up i guess um for those in the industry would be kind of a fairly traditional mission control type um infrastructure um play but but for us it's uh it's really the the kind of joining of um a, a, a series of efforts and, and capabilities that we've developed in the subsea sector over the last number of years, combining with our ambitions in, in the space sector. Um, and maybe at that at that point, it's worth just kind of doubling back and going, you know, how, how did we get to the point that we wanted to build a mission operations center in space? Um, and that wasn't where we began. I mean, the, the journey to get to where we are today in the subsea sector has really um, only come about over the last sort of five to seven years. Not that long ago, you know, if you're looking at offshore oil and gas and, and the energy sector and, and the subsea sector was fairly traditional big diesel burning assets. And, and, and it's the same way that, that that sort of work had been done for a long time. 
but we were fortunate that we, we we encountered some people that kind of highlighted we could do things differently. We saw that the military were, were exploiting satellite communications in a certain way. They were already down the path of deploying um, autonomous assets. And, and we, we began on our own journey um, of building out a technology stack that could allow us to transform the way we did work in the offshore oil and gas sector. And, and many would already know that Fugro now are one of the few organisations in the world um, operating fully uncrewed semi-autonomous assets on a daily basis. And, and we were building out a capability towards that to really transform the way we worked in the offshore sector to increase um, safety, to drive down our environmental footprint. But equally through that journey, we came, became aware that there was a convergence across many sectors. You know, everyone is trying to kind of down crew their operations, increase safety, drive down their environmental footprint. And, and particularly in Australia, we saw it across the mining sector, we saw it in the defence sector, and we also saw it in the emerging space sector. So that the Australian Space Agency is only four years old and, and they wanted to build out a strategy that captured some of this capability. And we were fortunate to ultimately partner with them and, and take what we'd learnt in the subsea sector and, and combine it with what we thought would be an interesting vision in, in the space sector. And it's fantastic to have people like Dawn come along and validate that that, that opportunity is genuinely exists. And then, then further to that, people like Tim come along and say, yeah, you know, we'd be interested in kind of capitalising on the work you're doing. And, and that takes us to last week, the formal opening of the Spark facility, which is that that kind of melting pot of those two industries with the ultimate goal of supporting infrastructure and, and operations and, and, and the sorts of stuff we see Fugro doing terrestrially, but doing that in space as well. That opening was clearly a milestone. Could you give us some sense of the timeline from the first realisation that there was something that could be done in space up to the opening of the, the centre last week? Yeah, I think the, the the idea that there was opportunity in centralising operations and, and scaling um, centralised operation of robotic systems across multiple industries probably you know, it started really forming around 2017 on the back of the thinking we'd put into transforming the oil and gas, transforming our oil and gas sector operations. Ooh, ooh. It probably wasn't until 2018 where it occurred to me that the space opportunity was emerging. That industry definitely appeared to be changing. And, and again, people like Tim have, over the last four years have validated that. that. That is absolutely true that the space, space is evolving. The economy around space will evolve. And and I was very fortunate at the time to get some exposure to some long-standing NASA folks um, out of NASA at the time, a couple of which had moved to Australia um, and, and some still based in the US who, who had some influence over there. And they kind of pointed to me towards some areas that we possibly could influence on the back of the work that we were already doing. And, and so from there, you know, fortunately, the Australian Space Agency was also born. They developed their own strategy. They, you know, they really wanted to move fast, build on, on the back of what Australia was already good at. There was some clear history around communications, but obviously in the mining sector, we see you know Australian businesses deploying autonomous assets on a daily basis in, in huge numbers. And and typically, um, especially, I mean, I mean, again, Tim, I am one and, and, and the um, Nova, Nova Sea Lander is a good example of a, a fully uncrewed asset. And, and that's the sort of stuff we were doing in the mining sector and the offshore oil and gas sector. So that, that all kind of comes together to kind of, I guess, make us believe that it was possible to make a contribution. And I guess post the award in 2019, uh, sorry, 2020, 
yeah, we worked through that in 2019. Post the award in 2020, it kind of all started to really come to life and gave us the opportunity to attack it. That approach, Sam, of, of a multi-sector perspective is really why we resonated when we began to talk, because that is our company's roots, was, was starting there. And to see someone else taking the same approach to get to where we were in space, and the opportunity to, to look in someone else's toolbox and see if they solve problems in a way that might be beneficial to you that you hadn't thought of as an opportunity for, for innovation and improvement too. Coming from outside the space sector, it's easy to assume that NASA and others have already solved all the problems. Um, but I think the, the exciting thing for us is obviously, you know, organizations like NASA continue to push the boundaries, therefore problems continue to bubble to the surface. And, and to hear you say that and then to have Dawn come to come to Perth and, and kind of also validate that, it just makes it more exciting to think that you can actually be a contributor to, to such an exciting and emerging sector. Dawn, now you've come down to Perth, what are the main activities and areas of focus for Spark? So, um, you know, obviously now with the grand opening, we're really looking at both in Australia and also with um, Intuitive Machines and other other international partners, what how to how to set ourselves up for uh, the capability to operate heterogeneous space missions in our center. So, from the Australia side, it's really interesting, you know, as Sam and Tim have both pointed out, sort of this like big movement of of space in the last few years, big increase. And focus that's been happening across Australia too, and so what we're you know what we're seeing is just that that's just starting to emerge, and we're really hoping is something like Spark or Spark in particular can help take away some of the burden that this new ecosystem in Australia um, will have, and they can they can go ahead and and give mission operations over to us. They can focus on their space asset or their payload or whatever the, the space um, asset, you know, space asset that they want to fly. And we can focus on mission operations and help create that capability across multiple missions for them. And we can do the same for Tim and his team and we can, and others across the globe. Being in the Southern Hemisphere um, gives secondary advantages for those in the Northern Hemisphere since um, we can operate while they're sleeping um, and, and vice versa. So there's some, um, some extra advantages built into our distances. And I think it's just gonna be, I think what we're gonna see in space globally in Australia and locally with Spark is just extreme growth in the next three to five years. It's gonna be amazing. And we're probably as excited, if not as nervous as Tim about IM1, because, you know, we'll, we'll be a part of that conversation. We'll be, you know, we'll be handling some of that data on their behalf, which will be, which will be an incredible experience. Tim, the name IM1 suggests there might be an IM2. In fact, there's there's an IM2 and IM3, and we're on the cusp of, uh, of IM4. But let, let me talk a little bit about how IM2 is different from, from IM1. IM1, in a sense, is a traditional serialized mission operations plan. We launch, we transit, we capture an orbit around the moon, we land, we operate our sensors. One ops team, one spacecraft, 
you know, one, one set of, of procedures throughout the whole thing. We get to IM2, we have a much more complex mission. We have a communications relay satellite that we're deploying. So as soon as we separate from the, the booster after Miko, we go from one spacecraft to two spacecraft operating concurrently. Once we land on the moon, that mission has a, a prototype water ice drill that we're flying for NASA. We have a 4G LTE demonstrator on a rover that we're flying for Nokia. And we have our own rocket-powered drone hopper, which will fly off the vehicle and hop into permanently shadowed craters and, and take measurements. So three significant payloads, two with mobility on the surface. The lander has to be operated. And oh, by the way, I've got a, a orbiting comm relay sat. So we've gone from a serialized single mission, single focus to a mission now with five significant concurrent components. And, and that is going to be a huge amplification of the, of the bandwidth needed to successfully execute that kind of mission. As we look to our forward missions, a lot of them are that complex or even more complex. Our second mission has five rovers on it. Or sorry, our third mission, I am, I am three, the next mission after I am two, has five rovers on it and another comsat. So being able to surge with Fugro when, when we have all these extended operations going on in parallel is incredibly important. Also, we're dropping off a comm relay satellite that we're going to continue to operate uh, as long as we can turn its lights on. And so now the, the challenge we've faced in this podcast with getting three time zones together around the world uh, becomes an advantage to be able to have Houston control hand off at the end of the shift to Oz control and say, hey, you've, you've got the bird. Call us if you need anything. And, and now we've got a regular rhythm and lunar development will never set on the Earth. It'll happen globally all the time. Given the wide range of programs that Tim is talking about, did you have to set up the Spark Center with a with a degree of flexibility? Absolutely, I think. But but to be fair, I guess we were taking some of those um, opportunities and, and and I guess challenges into consideration, you know, before the conversations we were having with Tim. You know, we are we are a service provider after all, and and we wanted to kind of consider all of the the potential endpoints that we were going to be handling and. Um, yeah, so the infrastructure that we've built was built from the beginning to be able to handle a variation on operations, a variation on missions. And I think that's why this partnership kind of um, is kind of formed the way it has, because Tim and the Intuitive Machines organization are, just, are chasing such a variety of, of mission with, with varying complexity. And because we've built a capability that, that equally can handle that, we're kind of primed and, and ready to go for such a, a scenario that, that that Tim is referring to, you know, not not with withstanding that space is an extremely difficult domain to operate in, and operating from an area like Australia means we have a lot of capability de development that that is still required. Um, nevertheless, those are, those are some of the considerations that we had made early, and that kind of flexibility is absolutely built into the infrastructure today. And because we've able to focus on infrastructure instead of on a specific mission or a specific set of missions. Because we're focusing on operations infrastructure, we're also looking at what does that mean in terms of scalability as these, as we take on more missions, as the missions become more complex, as they go from one to five to five to 10 or whatever they're going to grow into. Mission operations can't scale linearly with that type of with mission complexity or with the number of missions that are being supported. And so looking, you know, we've 
we've spent some time thinking through how we get to where we are now, as well as looking forward, going scalability is going to be one of our main areas of focus. I was at the uh, the grand opening in, in Perth last week, and it was it was very refreshing to walk through the Spark facility and get a different perspective. If you come to our Nova Control facility, the terminology we use, the way we laid it out, the decor screams spacecraft operations from the beginning, one focus. And and we have struggled with, okay, how do I go from spacecraft operations to rover operations to drill operations, and how do I reconfigure? When you walk through the Spark facility, uh, just to brag on you guys a little bit, you can see reconfigurability in, in, in the DNA of what they have. So there's a base of operations that will support anything you need, and then they can change things and move it around and morph it for missions of mine that might have two additional payloads, five additional payloads, and really reconfigure in a way that we hadn't conceived of with a, you know, kind of a spacecraft mindset. Wonderful. Wonderful. Let's now move the conversation to lunar operations. What sort of challenges will be encountered when we begin commercial missions to the moon? There's, there's two people here, one, one who's most definitely already delivered a lunar mission and one who's about to, so I'll, I'll leave that to John. Well, you know, the, the, the issues that you, you, you worry about the most are communications and then I'll say power thermal as, as one thing together. The moon gets extremely hot uh, on the illuminated portions and it's extremely cold in the shadow. Even if those are only, you know, a few meters apart, there's, there's, there's extremes right next to each other. What do you mean by extremes? So you could land next to a boulder and have half of your lander in the shade and the other half of your lander in illuminated sunlight and have a 200 to 250 degrees Celsius difference between the shaded part and the illuminated part. And so we, we worry about that constantly. And, and so we, we want to monitor our systems. Well, I'm also close to 400,000 kilometers away from Earth now which means it's roughly a hundred times more difficult to communicate to the moon in terms of power and bandwidth than it is in, in geostation, to geostationary satellites. So we really have systems that we have to configure to maximize our communications bandwidth and then take advantage of the information we are given because you will never get all the information you want. You're always working with a constrained set of data on this asset under these extreme conditions. And Don, you've lived it with, with Laddie. LADI stands for Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer, a robotic mission that orbited the moon to gather information about the structure and composition of the thin lunar atmosphere. Yeah, the lunar environment really is extremely challenging. As an orbiter, I thought it was challenging. Landers have additional challenges related to the lunar uh, regolith, which is extremely difficult to deal with, extremely, um, it hasn't, hasn't, the particles haven't been eroded by water or, or weather. And so, um, they stick together and form, um, and, and have these sharp edges. And so they stick together and form much steeper slopes for mountains and valleys, um, that have to be traversed or avoided. You know, the temperature extremes are, are difficult to manage. Yeah, I guess, I guess there really, really isn't an easy part of, of lunar missions, honestly. Um, the 
you know, the fact that lunar day is 14, 14 days followed by 14 days of lunar night means if your mission's dependent on daylight, you've got to push everything and work extremely fast and your entire team is basically going strong that entire 14 days to get everything you need done and take advantage of it as much as you can. Um, all of those challenges uh, make lunar missions today quite, quite difficult. That's also what makes it fun. Given these extreme challenges, why should we want to go to the moon? What kind of presence do you see us happening, having in two or three or five years' time? So let's go, let's go five years. We'll have, we're moving into, into a regime where between what NASA CLIPS is doing and what the rest of the Artemis Accord signees are doing on their own, we have satellites, we have landers going to the moon. Uh, China is, is very interested in developing the moon. So in five years' time, you could see a, a once every two months, a once a month launch to go to the moon with either an orbiter or a lander, that kind of frequency. You could see the beginnings of surface infrastructure where we might land a lander with a, a power supply that is there for other assets to drive up and plug into and use as a charging station, much like you would with an electric vehicle. And so we'll begin in the next five years. You'll just see the beginnings of this as a service mentality moving from just the delivery to a communications network of, of cooperative satellites, um, surface assets. People will start talking about returning things from the moon. Now, you want to talk about complexity. It's hard enough to get to the moon, but, but, to, but to pull a Bilbo Baggins and go there and back again is, is a real challenge. So that's five years down the line. What about further in the future? For example, at what stage do you imagine that we will actually be creating infrastructure using materials sourced from the moon itself? That, that is of keen interest. The whole idea of 3D printing and in-situ manufacturing. We'll see the first steps of that in five years. And I think we'll be doing it regularly within 10. You know, we haven't mentioned that the South Pole is, you know, in the next five years, the South Pole is going to see just an extreme amount of, of um, attention and a bunch of spacecraft and rovers landing and, and operating in that space. And that there's a couple of reasons that that's gathered everyone's interest um, specifically around water ice that could be potentially trapped in permanently shadowed craters. and. That water ice is a resource that has a lot of value in space. And so um, the ability to separate that in, well, the ability to use water, the ability to separate that into hydrogen, oxygen, et cetera. That, that kind of, that's a, a, a large driver for what we're going, what's going to um, lead to uh, infrastructure development, which you can tell all three of us are really passionate about infrastructure, which is ex super you know, exciting for all of us. It's, it's the drive for those specific types of resources that's going to allow um, us to spend our time and energy on, on infrastructure for the moon. And maybe it's also worth noting, I, I believe there's a pretty significant argument and debate on both sides of this, but, but the, the moon will form an infrastructure base that will support missions that, that go further onto Mars. Whether or not that's necessary or not, you know, that, that's a debate for another time, but it will absolutely exist as infrastructure to support that and to support missions that organisations like NASA and others are pushing further out. Um, 
and I don't think many would argue that a lot of that infrastructure is absolutely going to evolve and exist if we look a decade out, for example. I guess we expect human presence in, in, the, de in the next decade. It seems to me that in recent years, space has been a very collaborative process across countries and politics. Is collaboration going to remain a key driving force in the future, or is it now going to be more about competition? I mean, I think the International Space Station has been um, a really nice example of that, a place that has a lot of international partnerships, also uh, an asset that people that people have used for payload, you know, put, putting up payloads that aren't related to specific governments and are um, being done by industry or by universities, et cetera. So I think we've already, we already have examples that we can um, lean on. And it's true that, you know, space is a challenging environment and challenges like that require a lot of different capabilities and skills to come together to succeed. And that means a, that encourages collaboration. Yeah, it absolutely drew me in, you know, like kind of that, you know, becoming aware of that really collaborative kind of and, and the high energy environment because it takes all of everyone and everything to be able to do, do the things that, that, you know, Tim and Dawn have been doing in space for a while. And, and leadership on this topic matters a lot. You know, if, if, the, if the CLIPS program had come out and said, well, we're going to commercially compete these missions, but you can only carry NASA payloads. Well, that would have kind of encapsulated things and, and there we go. But what you have is you have a stack up of the Artemis Accords where we have uh, here in the States, NASA and our State Department saying, hey, we want to go out and reach out to international participation. We want to invite collaboration as we explore and develop the moon. And then the CLIPS program came out and said, hey, we don't want to be the only payload. And so that leadership gave us a signal to say, well, when we have an opportunity to talk to someone like Fugro Spark, it's encouraged for us under that umbrella of this is the, the paradigm we want to maintain to have international partners and, and to find uh, people who can help us do the work like Spark, but also work with payload providers and researchers in Australia who say, hey, we really have something to contribute, but maybe I only have a five or 10 kilogram payload and I don't know anything about operations and payload integration and launch activities and, and how to execute thrust maneuvers. All I want to really do is, is collect my data so I can contribute to the cause. Now we can collaborate and, and together we can say, well, we'll take care of all those parts that are our stock and trade. You focus on your specific area that you're going to add something new and exciting. But I think at the top level, that leadership has, has been a signal that encouraged us to reach out. And, and we knew that when we go back to, you know, either to NASA or to the Australian Space Agency and say, hey, we're working internationally with partners, that's almost a commercial voluntary echo of the Artemis Accords that have been signed between the governments. We've heard your vision for the future, but I'd, I'd like to get your insight into what we might expect 10, 20, or even 30 years down the line. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, 10 years from now, we, we anticipate having a full lunar orbiting communications relay and navigation constellation. It'll be like GPS in some ways, but, but maybe not quite as ubiquitous as GPS. That will be a huge resource for for surface and orbiting users. 
In 10 years, we'll start moving into surface power assets. Some of those will uh, even be fission power, nuclear power on the moon. And so then we're going to get into some really interesting conversations about stewardship. And, and if, uh, if you begin developing the moon, how do you preserve it as well for future generations? And we've made some missteps here terrestrially, as, as we've all known and studied in, in, in history. But we've also made some great progress. And, and one of the things, you know, as a uh, infrastructure provider, transportation provider, that I enjoy working with, with Fugro and, and Sam and Donna, the people in Western Australia, in particular, who were so intent on mining and resource utilization, but doing it in a responsible way, an environmentally responsible way. How do we take that and take the best of those lessons learned in the next 10 years where we do have, I mean, you hate to say it, but where humans go, we generate trash, right? So how do we manage that? I mean, if you have 30 people living on the moon in 10 years, what is your sanitation system and your, you know, these are big questions that we don't know yet because we haven't tackled the, the first hard transportation ones. But some things that we're very used to looking at terrestrially with the sustainability of, of human communities, we'll be addressing those same issues uh, at the moon. And really, I think in 10 years, beginning to look at launching from the moon deeper into the solar system. I'm going to build upon that too and say that I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes back from um, space and what we're doing um, around the moons and and beyond, of course. And this is something that, you know, in the big government space agencies like NASA, there's always been a feedback loop back to Earth and and technologies and, and um, capabilities that, that come out of space um, to the benefit of society. But now we're looking at what's that, how's that going to play out now that it's we're expanding well beyond government agencies into commercial commercial entities um, and really widespread commercial entities. And so the how that loops back in, I, I'd expect an even faster loop for um, for that type of feedback. And I'm pretty excited about watching that happen over the next ten plus years. I'm pleased you raised that point, Dawn because there will be people who ask, why are we shooting all these rockets into space when we have so many problems at home? What would you, what would you say to those people? Yeah, this is, um, that's, it's an important, important question. And I don't think that they're separate problems though. I think that we, we all take a piece of that problem of problems at home and um, and tackle them with the skills that we bring to the table. In our case, or at least in my case, I'll speak for myself, that's in exploring the our universe, exploring um, our solar system, adding knowledge and science you know, to the world based on the missions we've been flying, and um, and trying to help support you know sort of the economics around um, technologies which I hope turns out to benefit society as well. Really, there's, there's two extra points there I'd like to make as well, John, is, um, you know, uh, just to go back to the kind of tw 10 to 20 years, 
um, uh, part of the conversation. You know, I, I expect by that stage we're seeing kind of most uh, commercial entities and corporate enterprises having space as part of their strategy somewhere or another. I expect to see pharmaceuticals manu manufactured in Leo. I expect to see you know long uh, fiber optic cables extruded in in space. We expect to see a lot more manufacturing in space, and that that will form a part of a lot of terrestrial business strategies here here back on earth um, but we shouldn't also ignore the fact that space has already contributed a lot to earth you know we already benefit a lot from the the technologies that have been kind of developed by the, the those that have been pushing the boundaries and if we look at maybe some of the industries that we're involved in that that do raise concerns such as en the energy sector and resources sector for example we are driving towards electrification we're trying to decarbonize as much as we possibly can and if you look at the work that tim's doing and others are doing in space they are pushing the boundaries of what also with um uncrewed assets with electrified assets with with automation and and, and software technology and and as as organizations like intuitive machines and others continue to do that businesses will be able to capture those learnings and and take them back and and build build them into the businesses down here and and we'll see you know small fleets of electrified um, trucks in mining that are, have far less impact on the environment than the vehicles that, that are there now. And I think that'll be one of the, I think, exciting opportunities. And, and there's, a, there's a history of that happening and, and we'll see that continue to happen in the future. It is often said that by doing, by taking the leap outside our comfort zone and engaging across different industries, we become better in our own space. By having the courage to develop an idea, however crazy taking those first steps may be, we become exposed to new, potentially fruitful horizons. But our conversation today, and thank you, Tim, Dawn and Sam, has reminded me that words too are important, not just actions. We need to set a responsible tone. People listen to our pioneers and our, and our leaders. As we get enthusiastic, excited about these endeavors, we all need to be able to visualize, preferably early, a desirable future for us all, wherever we are heading. Until next time. Be safe, be remarkable, be the difference.